Welcome to episode 8 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. How's it going? Uh, today, today we have a guest, um, Jonathan Ellis, who works on the Cassandra Distributed DB at Rackspace. Have I got that right, Jonathan? That's right. Good to be with you guys. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, so I, I came across uh, uh, Jonathan's blog. I think it's called Spiced. Is that right, Jonathan? That's right. Spiced. So in, he, he had written a, like one or two articles on, um, on distributed databases. And there's one recent one, I think, that was on uh, CouchDB, something like Not Drinking the Kool-Aid. And so I started reading a little bit of some of the stuff that, um, that Jonathan had written, and it was uh, really kind of interesting. And I thought, you know, it would be really uh, useful for to, to learn about you know what's going on with distributed d databases because you keep seeing things pop up on Hacker News about CouchDB or Cassandra or Dynamo or Bigtable and MapReduce and all this kind of stuff and unless you work on those on those particular technologies I think you know a lot of people might just not know what's going on so yeah totally so uh, first things Jonathan uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself uh, you know you you live in San Antonio Texas and work at Rackspace. Right. I've been in San Antonio for about six months. I moved here from Utah uh, to take a position with Rackspace and work in their cloud division on Cassandra. And before that, uh, I, I worked on the Mosey backup system. I wrote their storage backend, which is a scalable petabyte level storage system, similar to S3, but narrowly focused on the backup problem. How do we throw large amounts of data at this uh, system that's writing constantly but reading data relatively rarely. So it's, it was interesting because it's totally backwards from 90% of systems out there which are read heavy, and this was, you know, read light, write heavy. No, no, maybe I missed something. Why, why is it uh, the reverse? What's, what's going on? What kind of storage? So, so in, mo in most systems, uh, and something like S3 or Rackspace's cloud files are among them. You know, you write data, and then you read it more times than you write it. Right. But when you're designing a backup storage engine, you know, you actually write data that you never read. You know, you're, you're writing the data in case you need it later, your hard disk crashes, or you accidentally delete your PowerPoint presentation that you actually really need. Uh, so, but the majority of data that gets written is actually never read or read very infrequently. So there, you know, you optimize for different things under those circumstances than you do if you're trying to do a more generic uh, file storage engine. Okay, so that makes sense. That's just me not being a very good listener. So you said it was a backup storage. So I, I, that makes perfect sense. So um, yes. now this is this is at Rackspace. Are you working on their? They have like a few different services, like cloud sites and cloud servers and cloud files. And cloud files is what? Is that like a, a backup system? Is that offering or something? So cloud cloud files is like S3. So basically, we're trying to compete with Amazon Web Services. You know, they got there first, and, and we're catching up. And Rackspace has traditionally been about managed hosting, meaning, uh, you know, kind of the high end of the hosting market where uh, you lease servers from us and we do all the sysadmin and the, the IT stuff for you. Uh, and but, but you've got a specific server with your name on it or, you know, cluster of servers and so forth. So we're, we're moving into the, the cloud space because we see, you know, that's where the industry is going. This is going to be a bigger and bigger part of hosting. 
Can I ask a question about um, so it's it was Mosso, but you've the, the name's now changed to yeah. the Rackspace Cloud, yeah. Before we go to that, let me finish answer, answering oh, Jason's question. Sure. So uh, Cloud Files itself is an, an analog to S3. And then on top of that, as a backup product, we acquired Jungle Disk back in uh, October last year, I think it was. And so we, we do have that as kind of a backup uh, layer on top of that. So oh. sorry, go ahead, Justin. Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, you, you guys used to be called Mosso, right? And you've changed your name to the Rackspace Cloud. Is that correct? That's right. That's that's just recent, and you know, I'm I'm still going into rooms and being surprised to see a Rackspace Cloud sign on the wall where it used to say Moso. So the, so, the paint is new, newly dry. On the I, logo. I've been very fascinated with with Moso and the Moso story since I first heard about it. And what really intrigues me is the Moso sites. The idea that I can create a bog standard uh, PHP MySQL application upload it to Mosso sites, and Mosso sites will automatically scale in the background. So I don't need to think about scaling the DB. I don't need to think about writing special code. And I, what I, it's great to have you on the line to ask you, is that really true? <laughs> can it really do that? And what, what are the limitations? Well, you know, can it scale to 10 million, for example, or is that 10 million users I'm talking about? Or is that not the case? You know, uh, sites is the part of our product offering that I'm least familiar with. <laughs> And uh, my understanding okay. is that we're best with something like uh, WordPress or Drupal or PHPBB where, you know, it's something lots of people run. So we can put some effort into making, you know, making versions of those that scale rather than, you know, taking, uh, you know, code that you wrote this morning and magically making it work. Uh, and like I said, that's the part of the business that I'm least familiar with, so I could be totally wrong, but that, okay. that's my impression of, of uh, what they're doing over there. Yeah, because uh, Justin was the one who actually first introduced me to Moso, and uh, I actually set up a, a cloud site account uh, about a week ago, and just, you know, project I'm working on now is going to be on there, so I guess we'll find out, <laughs> see how it scales. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, because Justin was like, kept talking about it. He's like, oh, you should try out Moso, and, uh, you know, I had been using a couple other different, uh, like, shared hosting type of things or dedicated ho dedicated servers. And um, so I went through it and I asked and I, you know, talked to some technical people and it sounded good. So I set it up and I'm like, all right, Justin, I'm on. And I'm like, so how to work for you? And he's like, oh, I've never actually used it. I'm like, well, <laughs> so you're just recommending stuff to me? You have no idea it even works. Well, it's just, the, it's the holy grail. So really he it, wanted you, know? you to test it out. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I can't wait to find out how it works for you. I'm like, yeah, I suck. <laughs> just... I, I just love the idea. It's the holy grail, you know. Um, and not having to think about that scaling stuff would be amazing if it really worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, even if it works pretty well, uh, you know, it isn't a perfect solution for me anyway. That's that's it's worth it because you know I'm a I'm a one man show and I'm developing this for this current project I'm working on. I don't have other technical people to deal with other things, and so if I get sort of drawn into having to work with Linux and having to work with set up service like memcache and do a bunch of load balancing and multiple replicating MySQL databases. I mean, that's just take a lot of time and I'd rather just write the code and have it sort of magically work even if it's not quite as efficient. And that's that's the appeal of something like Cloud Sites or Google App Engine. You know, everyone thinks Google App Engine is about, you know, scaling huge sites because you've got Google infrastructure to do it on and that's part of what they're targeting. 
But the other part of what they're targeting is people like you, and, and cloud sites would fall into that same category, you know, people like you where you don't want to deal with, uh, you know, the IT costs and headaches and hiring a sysadmin or learning about Memcached and stuff. They just want their, to put their code up there and have it just work. Yeah, you know, actually, about a year ago, or about a year and a half ago, I actually hired a, an EC2 consultant to uh, sort of expedite my learning curve. And, and, you know, we spent a couple, you know, two or three days, you know, configuring instances and doing all the things to get EC2 running. And, you know, unless you're a Linux guy, I mean, that's just a gigantic pain in the ass. Um, totally. I, I'm not a Linux specialist. I'm a, you know, I, I write code and I, I can you know, fake my way around the command line a little bit, but, you know, it's just the thought of having to deal with Linux and not being a Linux expert, you're just like, this is just not a smart... But there are some, I don't know the names of them, but I'm sure that the, the, um, emerging at the moment are some control panel options that basically manage your EC2 instances for you. I don't know. And even when you're managing instances on EC2 or on something like Rackspace Clouds, uh, cloud servers, you know, those are still pretty low level. So there's definitely room in the market for something like cloud sites or App Engine, where you know you're, you're at an, another level of abstraction, where you, you know you just have to write the code, like uh, Jason said. Yeah. Now with Google App Engine, now what's the deal with uh, that? I mean, it, is it limited to Java or Python? I mean, what are your options? Because I know with Cloud sites, for instance, you have uh, PHP, Python, Perl, and ASP, if I'm not mistaken. So pretty broad range of, of technology. Only one, the only big one that I'd see out there was um, was Ruby, but everything else was was available. Right. So App Engine is going to support. And they started with Python, and then more recently they added Java, and not just Java, but basically anything that'll run on the JVM. You know, given the uh, security straitjacket they've put on it. So so that's where you see, you know, you see Groovy, you see Clojure, uh, all kinds of options because the JVM is the most popular platform for uh, for languages out there other than, you know, rolling your own uh, based on C and, and compiling down to the metal. So you can do like Jython and Scala and all those totally. things, I guess, right? right? Hey, can I, can I ask a question about uh, Cassandra? Um, I'm I'm interested to know what what the sort of working relationship looks like with you and Rackspace and Cassandra, given that that's an open source product, um, and you know you're sort of a, a major contributor to Cassandra, if I'm correct. Um, how does yes. that all sort of play? How does it all work together? So, uh, so Rackspace hired me to basically they said we need a distributed database because we're playing in the the cloud services area. And at scale, one of the things you need is structured storage that that scales better than you know your MySQL, your PostgreSQL. Yeah. So uh, I I took a look around in the, in this was about in December, and to see who was going to which of the projects out there. There's a bunch of projects out there in this area was going to get us where we needed fastest. And uh, I, so I looked at HBase and Hypertable and Dynamite and uh, a couple others. And Cassandra is the one that was, you know, the, the code base was relatively small and clean and the architecture was good. And uh, I could add the features we needed faster there than with the others. So uh, that's, mm. what, that's what I went with. And that's what we're kind of uh, uh, helping the open source world move forward with that. So it's interesting that you're feeding it back in and you're not just sort of taking it for yourselves. 
that's the that's the really right. great so, aspect. So we want to use it internally, but the other thing we want to do is, you know, honestly, uh, I, you know, I, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. I don't think I'd get in trouble for saying this, <laughs> but honestly, you know, Amazon is is the gorilla in the room there. They're the they're the one people think of when they think of uh, uh, cloud services. And so everyone else is playing catch up. And so when you're uh, when you're the leader, then you can play the proprietary lock-in game, and that's what Amazon's done with uh, right. things like uh, SimpleDB. Uh, but you know, as as the number two and number three players, uh, they can't afford to do that, and they need to emphasize openness and saying, "Hey, if you don't like us, your data is free to move anywhere you want." And yeah. so, if if you're, uh, so what we need is we need to have an open source database. To, so we can say, you know, if you if you don't like our cloud and we don't provide you good service, you know, Cassandra's open source and you can run you can run it on uh, Sun's cloud just as well as ours. And so you, you're you're back in control of your data when we ha when you have a strong open source uh, option like that. That's a smart. That's very. That's actually a very smart thing to do. I think. Um, Great. So. Okay, can we actually like to back up a little bit here? Okay, so Cassandra is a distributed database. Um, I used to think of as Dynamite and HT Hypertable and some of these things. I wonder if you could give us a little, I don't know, overview of what distributed databases are, how they work, a little bit of history on them. Just because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to this who are, might have heard about them, read a little article, but aren't, aren't that up to speed on them. And I would be one of those people. So <laughs> if you're curious what you have to say. Sure. So the killer idea behind distributed databases is that rights are hard to scale. Now, if you've got your traditional type based on MySQL or whatever, uh, we know how to scale reads. It's, re it's relatively easy. You throw a memcached at it, you throw a replication at it, so that the reads are hit hitting different servers that all have the same data on them. Uh, now, that, that's relatively easy to do. We know how to do that as an industry very well. Now, the problem is when you need to scale writes as well, when you have more of write volume than a single node can handle. Because you know, replication, even master-master replication, is predicated on the assumption that every node can handle the whole write volume. And that's just not the case in, in, uh, with a lot of sites anymore. Uh, we need to spread the writes across multiple nodes such that each node is only responsible for a small part of the actual data. So in uh, traditional relational databases, you know, people have ta attacked that problem with the concept of sharding, where uh, you partition your data across across the nodes in your database cluster, and some of the data goes on node A, and some of the data goes on node B, and so forth. And the trouble is that that is a very uh, manual, in, uh, time-intensive, error-prone process where there's no real off-the-shelf solution you can apply there. It's, it's basically every time you write an application that needs that, it's a one-off process. And it's, uh, it's uh, an operations-intensive process where when you start having to, uh, when you deal with failures and failover and uh, having to grow your cluster to handle more load than you initially did. And these are all uh, uh, labor-intensive processes, and people can and do get them wrong. And you you basically end up having to scale your operations team at the same rate as you scale your database. 
And that's not what we want. We want to get to a magical, happy world where the database pretty much manages itself and you have you know, a small team of DBAs such as you used to have in the 90s when you only had one machine to take care of. So the two distributed databases are all about scaling rights. And so the two seminal papers that really got the game started there were the big table paper in 06 from Google and then the Dy Dynamo paper in 07 from Amazon. And those systems take very different approaches to uh, making a database that scales rights. Uh, in particular, Google took the approach that, you know, hey, we already wrote a distributed file system called GFS, so how can we layer a database on top of that? And so for them, that approach made a lot of sense. You know, we, we have a working debug distributed file system, so we're, we can build on top of that. But what they ended up with was, if you read the big table paper, you've got a, a design that has five or six different components of which... Uh, at least two are, are single points of failure. And so, of course, in a distributed system, single points of failure make you uh, scared. And you have, you have to devote a lot of energy to making sure you have failover processes in place that, you know, when, the, when, a no, when one of those single points goes down, that it fails over quickly to the backup uh, with minimal impact on the service. So, you know, the architecture for Bigtable is... Uh, you know, it's not something you'd come up with if you were starting from scratch. It's what you come up with if you already have a big part of it, the distributed file system layer, debugged. So, so what you have uh, with HBase and Hypertable, those are the uh, open source projects that said, hey, let's clone Bigtable. And so they're in the boat of having to uh, redo all that architecture that Bigtable depends on without having the benefit of, you know, having started that several years earlier. So that's why here we are in 2009, uh, HBase and Hypertable, uh, you know, they're making, they're making a lot of great progress, but they're still, you know, basically alpha quality code. And uh, it, you know, there's, there's, it's just a really hard architecture to get right. You, you have to, you just have to throw a lot of man hours at it. And, uh, you know, if you look at all the components in, uh, in, in the HBase and Hadoop code base, the, the components of Hadoop that HBase depends on, you know, all total, you're looking at about 300,000 lines of code. And wow. Cassandra, by contrast, is about 50,000 lines of code. So that's one of the reasons that when I was looking at systems, I didn't look just look at the feature set, but I looked at the architecture and I said, you know, if I'm going to be responsible for uh, being for troubleshooting, if if anything goes wrong, if I'm the one who's responsible for troubleshooting it and fixing it, you know, which one am I going to be able to have a better shot of doing that in? So I had to ask myself, you know, do I want to be responsible for debugging and troubleshooting? You know, this 300,000 line system with five or six different components, or do I want to debug a single component in 50,000 lines of code? And the thing is, you know, if, if any of these components were bug free, then I can say, well, I don't have to worry about that. That, that doesn't count towards the complexity, but, but it, it's early enough and the architecture is difficult enough that I couldn't really say that about, about any of those pieces. So I had to consider the whole thing. So... That brings us to 2007 when Amazon uh, put out their paper about their storage system called Dynamo. And uh, 
Dynamo is based on ideas that came out of academia uh, called distributed hash tables, where you know people said a hash table is a surprisingly powerful concept. Uh, you can actually do a lot with it that you know people normally think. Oh, I need a database for that. And if you look back in the early days of the industry, you know you had BDB. That's basically a persistent hash table. Uh, and so we can apply the same concept to distributed systems. The thing is, the academic uh, distributed hash tables were all targeted towards systems like BitTorrent, where you have thousands of nodes that are all very, very flaky. You know, you can't depend on any given consumer machine in a BitTorrent network being there for more than a couple minutes. So the, that's the wrong trade-off. They're, they're, they're designed for the wrong trade-offs uh, for a system where, you know, it's going to be in a data center, we can rely on the machines. Uh, decommissioning or adding new nodes is going to be a relatively rare occurrence. Uh, so we want to make different trade-offs if we were going to design that. And that's what Amazon did. So Dynamo's is based on uh, consistent hashing uh, and a, a completely peer-to-peer -peer design. There's no single points of failure. There's only one kind of component, and it's, it's a much, much simpler, much cleaner architecture. And where Cassandra comes from is one of the authors of the, uh, the Dynamo paper, uh, Avinash, and I'm going to butcher his last name, Lakshman, uh, went to Facebook and they said, you know, we need... A, a structured distributed storage system that can scale as well. And so he said, you know, I'm going to take the lessons from Dynamo and I'm going to take what I learned from that and uh, what, what, we, what we can learn from uh, Bigtable and put those together. So in, in a lot of ways, uh, from its uh, pedigree, Cassandra is kind of a Dynamo 2.0 uh, with, with the rich data model that you see in uh, Bigtable, but... Uh, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer clean architecture from uh, Dynamo. Interesting. Wow. That sounds really powerful. I mean, how far along is Cassandra? I mean, is it uh, production ready? I mean, I imagine if, if Facebook is using it, then that, that would be pretty production ready for most projects. Yeah, so Facebook started with a node of about a cluster of about 80 machines, and uh, now they have about 150 uh, running uh, Cassandra in production. And so, you know, it, it is production ready if you have a high tolerance for the bleeding edge. Uh, so uh, there's, uh, you know, when, when Facebook open sourced it, they open sourced it about a year ago and put it on Google Code. And then about uh, three months later, uh, they did a they did another an updated code dump, and then in March of this year they put it in the Apache incubator with with another update, and then and from there the open source community you know latched onto it and really really uh, grew it from there. Uh, so you know to some degree you know a lot some of the features uh, you know I don't want to be negative, but some of the features they're like you know they they work for Facebook's use case, but they take a little bit of work to to make it more general. Uh, so so that's kind of you know if if I were to summarize the state of the project in one sentence, that would be you know where it is that uh, you, know, you can expect to have to put in a little bit of work to uh, to uh, make it make it more fully cover 
your problem set that doesn't necessarily overlap what what Facebook's was, if that does makes that, sense. Does that relate? Because I, I saw that you'd written a blog post uh, why you won't be building your killer app on a distributed hash table. Um, and I just want to ask you about that. You know, it's it seems strange that someone who's writing a distributed hash table would write a blog post with that title. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, that, I guess that does seem a little strange. But my point there was that uh, you know, the distributed hash table itself, where you have just a key value uh, data uh, model, you know, that's that's the limiting part. Not just not not the distributed part, but the yeah. the hash table part. And How so, does it limit you? So where I was going with that is that you actually want, you know, there, and I gave an example in my blog post about a paper some people wrote about trying to write range queries on top of a distributed hash table. And so if you have a distributed hash table, what that means is if you have a distributed hash table uh, and you put keys in and you get values out, uh, how, do I, how do I ask the system what keys did I put in already? You know, technically, a a pure distributed hash table doesn't necessarily have any way to answer that question. So a range query gives you the ability to say, what keys do I have between this key and this other key? Yeah. And so if you set, if you take the first key to be the empty string, for instance, then you can start at the beginning of the key space and ask it for all the keys, you know, page through all the keys in your system. So uh, for both for doing indexing and for, uh, you know, just, asking the question, you know, what keys do you have? Do you know about uh, that's, that's a really important feature to have. And, and it turns out that it's really difficult to layer that on top of a pure DHT uh, and you can do it, but it's slow. And uh, it, it, each, each uh, range query turns into many, many, many underlying key value gets. So, so it's the wrong, uh, my, my point there was that it's it's a design that doesn't really allow for layering more powerful tools on top of. So you can want you give us real can you give us like real world examples like how 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 does this translate to uh, you know an actual website? Because um, are you talking about for example paging through results? I'm I'm probably showing my ignorance here, but I don't know what you mean by uh, the you know paging through the keys. How does that relate to an, an actual application? So let's let's say let's say I have a, a blog application. I want to I want to scale WordPress. Yeah. Uh, so I, so I want to have I want to have one of the things I want to ask for is given user Jonathan, what posts has he written recently? Recently, and if I don't have a way, you know, if I'm mapping my posts as you know, my post title is the key, and then you know the value is going to be some serialized version with the date and the blog content and and maybe the comments rolled into it. You know, if I don't have a way to ask what posts have I written, what keys are in my system, then you know I'm not going to get very far. So we want we want to be able to ask that question. We want to be able and we want that to be uh, a performant query because you know in a blog situation. You know, showing the most recent posts—that's the most frequently done uh, query. So, uh, so for something for something like that, you you need those range queries. You need to be able to say, what what are the posts that I've written recently? And so Cassandra on, lets you do that efficiently. So on an, on an app, oh, oh, Cassandra does let you do that efficiently. Right. So that was the other part of my post was that oh. you need assist since these tools don't necessarily compose well meaning you, it's hard to build sophisticated functionality on top of the lower level building blocks. You need a tool that 
builds in more power uh, you know, out of the box. So something like Cassandra is going to give you that. So, uh, so because when you say distributed hash table, I mean, that's part of what Cassandra is, but it's Cassandra is a distributed hash table, um, but more. Right. So right? The, the lineage there was Dynamo uh, took the distributed hash table concept and, and improved it to make better trade-offs for being in the data center. And then Cassandra took the Dynamo model and then added uh, a more rich, uh, you know, row and column uh, data model that that looks more familiar to people coming from a relational database background. So, is there is there a so if Cassandra can do that, is is it practical to build an application on top of Cassandra, like say a blogging platform or or something that has that you would normally have, you know, ten or twenty tables and a lot of different joins and stuff like that, and in SQL? I mean, can you can you do that? I mean, is, the, answer, is that the answer is yes and no. And the yes part is, yes, you can do it. And the no part is it's going to take a lot more work up front than it would on top of something like your traditional MySQL. Uh, and the, the reason is that it doesn't give you things like joins. Uh, it doesn't give you automatic index creation. You can index things, but you have to build the, the indexes manually. So you have to have a clear picture of what queries do I want to make to this system and uh, plan for those uh, up front. And it, it takes manual effort to either denormalize things or create the indexes manually uh, to do those. So it's a trade-off that you only make, really, if you say, you know, I know I'm going to be building the next blogger.com and I'm going to be serving hundreds of thousands of bloggers and millions and millions of page views per day because then the engineering effort to do that is less than the operations effort it would cost me to scale out a traditional database. But uh, but we're definitely at a point where these are young projects, and this goes for all of all of the distributed databases out there. These are young projects, and they all take you know significantly more engineering uh, upfront to than than uh, something like PostgreSQL that has been in development for 25 years. Are we simply missing a layer in the stack here, which is a layer that knows how to intelligent? Basically, for example, when you when you write games these days, you don't really get involved in the machine code. You don't get involved in lower level. You have you have a piece of software that that creates the game characters for you. Are we are we sort of missing a layer like that, an intelligent layer that can can make it easy to write those type of queries? Exactly. That and that, that's we're we're just at such early days and we're still focusing on building the foundation right. that nobody's really gotten to that next layer up yet. So we're we're mm -hmm. all still writing in assembly language, as it were. But you know, the, there's so much interest in this and so many companies need this kind of tool with the huge volumes of data that are being generated now that we're we're going to move to that next level very quickly in the next couple of years. So you could probably have startups that uh, that could play in a couple different areas here. One could be one that that's sort of a consulting company that uh, might sell tools, but then consult in, in in sort of the in the space where they help migrate companies from their traditional relational databases to Cassandra once they hit a certain point where they start their operations um, cost of of is, is too high, right? And you say, okay, we're going to help you move right. this. Another would, of course, building tools that like 
Justin just specified, you know, tools that sort of translate stuff or getting in there. But I guess really the, pe the people who are working on the Cassandra pro project will probably end up building some of those tools themselves and they have the real insight on how to do that. You know, it's so hard to sell proprietary tools today. You know, some companies, you know, make it successful, but it's so much, an, it's such an easier sell to say, you know, we're, we're open source. We have all these, all these uh, contributors testing it and, and flushing it out. And, you know, you're not paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in licensing fees every year. Uh, it, it's it's a much easier sell if if you're open source. So, I th you know there. It, I'm not saying it's impossible to create a tools play on top of by by building proprietary add-ons on top of one of these distributed databases. But it's definitely definitely a tough sell. Yeah. Well, it, the very least, it's going to be interesting once whether it's open source or whatever. I mean, once once those tools are available, once people can create applications on top of these databases without having to be experts in, in how, um, how Cassandra really works, then you're going to see probably a, 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 lot of, um, a, a lot of adoption, I would think. I have a question. Uh, when, you, when you first started working with the Cassandra team, the open source team, so you're, you're, in, you're in a commercial company and you start working with them, how, mm -hmm. what does that look like in terms of hierarchy? Like, how do you get involved with them and then you know does your role then take on more importance and how do you communicate with the other developers i'm you know once again i don't really understand how this sort of large level open source uh teams build and work together can you talk us a little bit through that i can try i've been doing open source for years so it it's something that comes naturally to me at this point uh so how what what happened was uh in cassandra's case i in december we were still in the uh, phase where uh, nobody in the open source community had commit access to the code. So what I did was, you know, I, I just put a fork on GitHub and started uh, started working on it there. And since I had, uh, you know, I was fixing issues that that uh, people were running into. I was adding features. People started using that code. And when uh, Facebook put it in into a, the Apache organization. I, I migrated my my changes into that, and uh, the Apache mentors made me a committer in the in the you know the open source uh, project, and so for a while I was actually the only uh, non Facebook committer in the project, and we recently added two more. We added Eric Evans and June Rao. Uh, Eric is my coworker here at Rackspace, and June works for IBM in California. So when you so, say you migrated your changes into there, I mean, how, how does that work? I mean, you obviously have to talk to them and say, hey, I want to, you know, do you guys want to use this code? Do they contact you? I mean, how did that whole conversation go? So <laughs> this is, this is a, an interesting, interesting line of questioning uh, <laughs> because what happened was uh, at, short, shortly after putting it into the incubator, uh, the original Facebook developers decided for, you know, f yeah, I, I won't try to guess what the reasoning was, but, but for, the, for, their, for their own reasons, they, they uh, went back to developing in-house and they've mostly left the open source community alone at, uh, since that point. So they've gone proprietary uh, again. Right. More, and, you know, uh, you can... 
talk about semantics and that might not be a characterization that they agreed with 100%, but okay. you know, that's, that's fundamentally what happened. Uh, and based on the history of the project, uh, you know, that, that was not, and that was not incredibly surprising to me because what what had happened was if you'll recall you know they they open sourced it then 3 months later they pushed a new version of the code then uh 5 months later they they pushed a, a third version now, that's not how you know modern open source projects work you know that that's how open source projects worked in the early 90s uh when you know the the free software foundation says we'll give you the source but we're doing the development because we don't trust you unwashed masses but <laughs> you know since then everyone's pretty much moved towards the more open development model and in cassandra's case especially you know we had the community was begging to be able to contribute back fixes and improvements and new features uh, but you know for whatever reason again the the facebook guys it's it, you know it's 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 probably a, a time issue among other things. You know they they've got uh, deadlines to meet for Facebook internally, and uh, it's hard to deal with the demands of a community. On top of that, it's it's definitely a, a tough thing to balance because everyone's so, moving at a different pace, basically. Right, right, and and so some of the tension there is you know uh, I want you know maybe I have this version that I'm running in production, and uh, I don't want. I don't want that touched. Uh, but then other people say, well, that's nice, but I need to add these features. So you have to deal with branching and, and release management. And, and so there's, it's a whole uh, different skill set than just, you know, we're, we're developing this tool internally. So do you have a pro like a project manager for, the, for these open source projects? Or is it just coders sort of doing stuff together? It's mostly... Uh, uh, it's it's mostly a you know people contributing what they can contribute and and you know there's the there's a phrase scratching your itch you know I came in I needed range queries and uh, I needed deletion support so I I added those uh, we have a guy who works at Last FM Johan or rather he pronounces his name Johan Johan Oskarsson. Uh, who's, you know, he's, he's been with the Hadoop project for years. He's an expert Java developer, and he's, he's been responsible for making our build process uh, what it is. Uh, you know, one-click build, one-click test, integration with continuous oh, nice. integration, and uh, uh, you know, all, all, the, all the fancy you know, features you expect from a modern project. You know, that, that's, that's been his contribution. So people tend to contribute, you know, where they're, expertise is and, and where they have time. And, and, and the other trend today is that you see open source projects communicating not just on mailing lists, but also more real time on IRC. And, uh, and we're, we're definitely doing that as well. We're in Pound Cassandra on, uh, on Freenode. So who, so is there somebody, are there like one or two people who are sort of in charge who like accept the changes? I mean, who decides whether, you know, your changes uh, or improvements in range queries or stuff are accepted into, into the main trunk? So the the way the Apache projects tend to work is you have committers who are uh, who are the ones who can actually push code into the repository, and then everyone else everyone submits patches that are then reviewed by those committers and uh, and and pushed out if if they meet if they pass muster. So uh, so I'll I'll put. 
I'll put my work out there as patches as well to be reviewed by Eric or June or, or one of the other community members, and then uh, I'll, I'll push that in if if it uh, if it meets our quality uh, uh, you know checklist. So I mean, is it is it the kind of thing that only one other committer has to uh, give it a thumbs up or multiple? I mean, what's the so typically, most most Apache projects work by lazy consensus, meaning you'll say, I propose we do something, and if nobody else says that's a bad idea, then you can go ahead and do it. And so we, <laughs> we have <laughs> so we have code review where where someone will say, yeah, that looks like a good change, and if no one else comes along and says, no, that's a bad change, then then we'll go ahead and put it in. And right. you know, thanks to the modern source control, nothing's in stone. You know, if you miss if you miss something, and then a week later you're like, oh, that was a bad idea after all. Let's revisit that. Then you know that that's something that can totally happen. In fact, I, I want to move towards a more, you know, right now we have pre-commit review, meaning everything gets reviewed before it gets committed. But that uh, you know that's good in that everything gets reviewed, but it's bad in that it slows things down a lot. So I'd like to move to a post commit review where you know you you commit the change and then people review it at their leisure and, and give feedback. It almost sounds like you need an algorithm for com for optimal committing based on the structure of the project, almost like you do for distributed databases, right? Isn't it like the R plus W is less than or equal to N or <laughs> something like that. Like you need something, your your whole algorithm for lazy, lazy what was that, commits or something? Or what, what was the terminology? Lazy consensus. Lazy consensus. So you need like some kind of like, you, you need to write a paper on how, to, how what the optimal, you know, uh, algorithm is based on the project and committers and changes, you know. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if someone's done that. I mean, there's there's a lot of projects in the Apache Software Foundation and a lot of history there. Uh, and you know, to be honest, I'm I'm kind of a newcomer there, and and still still learning the ropes. Can tests answer this question in in some way? I mean, if you get sufficient test coverage, then that that sort of helps the the post commit case, right? Certainly, certainly, and that's another thing. You know, we, when Facebook dumped the code out, you know, there were there was no test suite, so you know, we basically built one from scratch, and we've we've come a long way in that respect, and that helps us be a lot more confident uh, that. We're not introducing regressions as we add features. What sort of coverage well, have you got? What, what sort of percentage? Uh, yeah, Line-based test coverage. You know, we're yeah. we're uh, on the on the critical classes. We're we're somewhere around eighty percent. That's great. Uh, and then on the the lesser, more uh, uh, non-core classes, uh, some of them aren't covered at all. To be honest, we you know we we've had three months to do this, and and we've. Uh, We've hit the high highlights first. So the um, uh, well, I'm sorry, just you go ahead and ask. You had a couple questions. Well, just I mean, we one thing we haven't talked about on the podcast is just how amazing uh, you know TDD is. I mean, basically, testing is such a great. It gives you such a great sense of security uh, when your when your code base is tested well. Um, but I don't know whether that's a discussion we want to get into now. But uh, what are you going to say? Well, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I mean, uh, one was, you know, you said you, it's built in Java, um, and we had ha talked to in an earlier podcast with Joel Ramond about um, uh, using Erlang for these, you know, highly scalable services. And I think he had talked about building this open poker uh, platform that had this massive scalability, and a lot of the current systems were built in Java, but they didn't scale as well. But they didn't know Erlang, so everybody just sort of CouchDB used Erlang. That's right. I mean, CouchDB yeah. user Erlang. I mean, had had you had 
is that ever been a consideration or is it just that by the history of what this is built in, it's just Java, so that's the way it is or what's the reasoning behind it? Yeah, so about for about two years, maybe three years now, I've wanted to build a distributed system in Erlang because, you know, it makes a lot of really good uh, decisions up front, uh, perhaps chief among which is that, you know, data is immutable and that clear, clears out a whole class of bugs that you run into in this kind of system. But, uh, you know, as a as a disciplined engineer, you, know, you can't just be off chasing the, the new and shiny. And so when, when you've got Cassandra, which is, you know, 50,000 lines of code that, that mostly works and does what it's supposed to do, then, uh, you know, I couldn't make the case that I, I should start over in Erlang. So you're falling in the same sort of uh, uh, place that Google is with um, their their big table implementation. It was on the Google file system. So they're like, look, we got this. We're just going to build on top of it. So, you know, Erlang could ultimately prove to be a better technology, but based on the reality and pragmatism, it's like we're Java. It works. It's fast. Yeah, you can, you can draw that parallel, sure. Was CouchDB around when you started? Yes. And, and that, that is Erlang's, but you, you still felt that Cassandra was the right way to go? Right. So Erlang, uh, sorry, Erlang, uh, CouchDB is focusing on a slightly different problem. So they say on their front page that they're a distributed database, but they mean something else than what we've been talking about today. And that's, that's kind of the source of my uh, venting that I'm not drinking the CouchDB Kool-Aid blog post that you know, they're distributed in the sense that Lotus Notes is distributed, that we're going to allow you to replicate parts of your database to different devices and, and reconcile those with the main source of truth database at a future point in time, which is, you know, that's interesting for all kinds of different reasons, putting part of your database on your iPhone and so forth. But it's, it's a different problem than I have... Uh, hundreds of thousands of writes per second, and how do I distribute those across different machines in my data center? I see. Because CouchBB has gotten a lot of uh, a lot of attention, it seems like. At least I keep seeing it pop up on Hacker News, over the, you know, or at least I have over the last six months. And I don't think I've really seen much of Cassandra. I think you're the only you couple of blog posts you, you wrote were the only things that, uh, the only times I'd ever seen it. So right. CouchDB so has part got my chair. Yeah, part of, part of that's the... You know, Cassandra has been open source for a year, but it's only been open to contributions from the community for about three months now. So, you know, in, in some sense, it's, it's a much younger project. Is the Cassandra transport mechanism HTTP or is it, is it something more, um, you know, unique to itself, like a socket type system? Just like so a- it's based on Thrift, which is another Facebook technology which is, uh, it's similar to Google's protocol buffers. So it gives you a way to serialize data uh, efficiently and uh, quickly in uh, a dozen different languages uh, and be compatible with each other. Okay. So, uh, as, and part of that, it has different transport layers. It has a raw socket transport. It has an HTTP transport. And, uh, you know, at, at the NoSQL conf- conference, the author of Voldemort said, you know, we've got protocol buffers, we've got thrift, we've got JSON, they all suck. And, uh, you know, well, that's kind of, uh, I, I, I agree strongly with that statement that, you know, thrift sucks, but uh, it, it, it does the job and it, it doesn't really suck much worse than, than, than the alternatives. Okay, wait, 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 what is the NoSQL conference and what is Voldemort? I, I, Voldemort, I've never heard of either of those. Or at least I've, heard, I've seen them once, but I don't really know what they are. 
So the NoSQL conference was a couple weeks ago in San Francisco after the Hadoop summit, and uh, Yuan Oskarsson, uh, who's the head of the Hadoop UK user group, put together a conference for distributed databases. And uh, if you if you Google that, uh, you can find videos of uh, you know, Cassandra and HBase and Hypertable and uh, Dynamite, which is a Dynamo clone in Erlang and Voldemort. And uh, MongoDB, you know, all these all these hot projects. Uh, uh, we've 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 got videos online, and Voldemort is uh, basically another Dynamo clone in Java. So that that they were open sourced uh, uh, not too long after I started on Cassandra. Actually, this is why I love technology because the Wild West never ends. There's always a new Wild West frontier. There's always somewhere where people are doing new stuff. And then other people are going to come along and commoditize that stuff and make it better. That's yeah, well, there's, as I was saying, there's just like there's no shortage of cool stuff. No, I mean, it's like it's the more we talk, the more cool stuff I hear about. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like this 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 podcast is never going to end. It's and like, if you if you start a project, my piece of advice for you would be, you know, think about your name carefully. Cassandra sucks as a name because it's a actually a fairly common girl's name. It turns out, but uh -huh. uh, you know, Voldemort, you know, is way worse. If you try to Google for something oh, yeah. about that, it's a nightmare. Well, yeah, tech, that's texting, that's we why... come up number one, which which wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, we, we said, well, it's a crap name, but uh, hardly anyone, you know, it'll come up quickly. I don't know. Hey well, guys, I've got I've got to run and relieve my wife of the kids. So um, absolutely. Well, I I think we're absolutely going to have to do a, a another uh, have you on again in the future because I still have about ten questions that I didn't even get to. Um, yeah, me too. But it was really really great having. Uh-oh, lost Jason there. All right, well, thanks, guys. Good timing. All right, listen, thanks a lot. I guess that ended a little quickly, but uh, he was really, uh, it was really interesting stuff. We're just really, definitely going to have to have him on as a, uh, a guest again. I, I, I personally had another 20 to 30 questions there. I mean, yeah, <laughs> didn't I? I had about 10. I kept writing down more, and I'm like, uh, you know, well, anyway, he's, that was, that was, that what was, was cool. I mean, it's not just about the technology. I'm really interested about the process and the human aspect and the whole way the whole thing ties together. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. That makes some of the most interesting, uh, you know, interesting stuff. It's not just like, you know, how you wrote an algorithm, but who wrote it and why and who was involved and da da da. You know, yeah, absolutely. Great. That was great stuff. So, um, yeah, we'll definitely, uh, definitely get him on again. Um, yeah. If he's up for it, but that was cool. So, Jonathan, when you listen to this, thanks so much for, uh, for uh, spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. it was very interesting. Yeah. Millions of things I want to talk to that guy about. <laughs> I mean, apart from. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, I would ask him about. I would have wanted to ask him about, uh, you know, you know, whether it was a Git repository and how they were using that. I wanted to have his experience with Git, and I wanted to ask him about the Apache incubator, and I wanted to ask him how he got involved with open source, and I wanted to ask him, shit, you know, whatever. I have to ask next time. But but I also, mean, I mean, it was the other thing is like the the, the technology. It, what it sounds to me like is for my startup should be using this technology. Probably thinking very seriously about it. You know, I mean, this—that's why it's so important to to stay abreast of the latest technologies and be ex reading about them and be experimenting about uh, with them and talking to people who are experts in it because it gives you such a different perspective on what the right thing to do is. Because yeah. if, if you don't know what these things are, you're just going to build everything in some very inefficient method because that's just what you're used to. The uh, the rack space question I, I still still haven't got the answer that I want to the rack space question which is how well is it really going to scale if you just put something up I think the sense I get from his answer is that a custom app isn't going to scale to 10 million users like I'm hoping 
But that's massive, you know. I mean, that's big. I mean, you get to that, you might have to do the migration. You know, spend some time migration, but it's a good place to start. Do you know what sharding is? You know who's talking about sharding? A little bit, not really. I think we should talk to somebody about sharding. I mean, basically, sharding is is where you, okay, so you have one long table, for example, with I don't know a million users, right? So mm -hmm. you then you then cut that table up into a hundred into chunks of a hundred thousand, mm -hmm. and you know each one of those is a shard. Oh, so it's it's row level. It's not like it's column level breakage. Yeah, row level. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I, one thing I want to talk to some. I read it. I just read it. There was a an article that popped up on Hacker News called um, "The End of um, Database Management Systems: The End of a uh, The End of a DBMS Era." It's actually what it's called. And the guy is basically talking about column um, column oriented databases versus row oriented databases, right. and how they're like fifty times faster and have all these advantages and you know whatever. I don't know. I don't. I don't know anything about about that but that'd be another cool topic i think the cool thing would be if someone could basically write a layer that translated sql to uh to work with these these hash tables oh, absolutely that's, well, that's kind of what i was getting at when i asked him is like you know a company i mean i said like a startup but obviously it could be an open source yeah. um you know effort or whatever but that would be huge i mean your your open source project your uh, easy sql i mean if you could extend it and say okay now you can it actually can can work with cassandra i mean how cool would that be i'll be wicked that would be really that good. Would, that would be badass. Yeah. I mean, you'd learn a ton, and it would be incredibly useful because right now, as he's described, it takes a lot of work to migrate a a traditional relation uh, application that's that's sort of that you've sort of. But it's not just had. migrating; it's also creating. Like, it takes a lot of work to just basically create an application. Like, if you want to do if you want to do stuff like select a range, you know, so in other words, page through results. That's tough to do. That's difficult, and. I mean, I, I, you know, looking at the website as well, that, what's that thing called? Um, just look there, Cassandra. It's the Thrift interface. Like, it's, it's absolutely nothing like SQL, you know, the way that you yeah. work with this database. Yeah, I mean, you know what you could do? You know what you th I might want to think about? It. It's like, okay, so you create an abstraction layer that, uh, or an adapter from like SQL to... Yeah, exactly. From SQL to... That's the kind of thing I'm thinking about, yeah. So, but with, with the understanding that certain types of queries based on experience won't work that well, that you can always drop down to the raw API if you have to. Yeah. But, you know, you, your first shot, give it the SQL and see how it'll work. And maybe it'll work really well, but there might be certain things you have to drop into the actual you know, um, base API, the core API or something. I mean, yeah. that's, that's with like any, that's almost with any abstraction layer. You're going to have to drop down on occasion. But yeah. I mean, like you talk about Ruby and active record and active record and all that stuff will handle most of what you're going to need to want to do. But on rare occasion, you're going to have to drop down and write some raw SQL and get in there. But there's no point in not using a tool that will abstract most of that. And that will, that will perform sufficiently like 95, 98% of the time. Yeah. You know, and uh, this is, yeah, this would just be cool. I, you know, I think you should do a project. I think you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe my I'll, God, I've got enough we'll, things to do in my life. Yeah, oh, maybe uh, if I could get down from eight to, like, five projects after the end of the summer, maybe I'll work with you on that, something like that. That would be cool, uh, you know. Or, or, you know, what we could do? We will convert Cassandra into Erlang. <laughs> 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 that will be our, that will be, like, a, you know, a nice project for the fall. If you know anyone who you think would like this show, we totally appreciate it if you could send them a link to textinglive.com uh, where you can listen to the show on demand or you can subscribe via iTunes. All right, so that's a wrap. We're out.